If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 is where we'll be studying today. I'm thankful for the break the last two weeks. Thankful to Brother Paul and to Matt for preaching in my stead. I'm glad I still have a job because not only did they demonstrate that you can preach for less than 50 minutes, but from this pulpit too. It is possible. So I'm glad to be back. Let's get right to work. 1 Peter 4, 12-19 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, give us honesty with ourselves and honesty before you as we examine your word. May we not be like the man who looks into a mirror intently and then forgets what he sees as he goes away but help us perceive clearly what you are showing us in the clear, pristine mirror of your word. Work in us by your spirit that we would be able to pay the necessary attention to the text this morning. Help us sanctify this time as your people, as we come together to hear and submit to your word. And if you would, right now, pray for yourself that the Lord would give you understanding and clarity this morning. And if you would, also pray for me that the Lord would give me words that would be helpful and my voice would not give out, and that we'd all be able to focus given the distractions that will be the case. Father, we love you and we trust you. Pray that you would do with this time as you will for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. So I want to begin by asking you an honest question. Are you tired of hearing about this? We have been for several weeks now preaching from texts that relate to, in some way, Christian suffering. And it is clear from this text that this is God's point. I want to give you a pastoral exhortation that you bear with sermons that take their structure and level of difficulty and content from the text. A lot, and I do mean a lot, of the New Testament and Old Testament is given to us in order to, number one, prepare us to suffer. Number two, help us understand suffering. And number three, prevent us from giving us Christianese answers for suffering. Number four, help us gain the necessary backbone to stand in the face of it. And to be so bold as to laugh because we know that the victory is won in Christ. Do you think of yourself as a Christian? I'm talking to the seasoned people in here and newer Christians, children who claim to believe in this room. There are many things that you can do with a beautiful Sunday morning. And sitting here in this room listening to a guy rant about a 2,000-year-old text is probably not the most enjoyable. There's a bumper sticker that you can see in many different iterations. I'd rather be fill-in-the-blank. Rather be fishing. Rather be at Silverwood. Rather be hiking. A preacher will never be able to compete with Lake Coeur d'Alene or the Xbox or smoking and eating meats. Maybe, maybe it's high time to ask yourself this honest question. Am I playing for keeps? Or am I just playing along? You know what? Suffering will reveal the truth. Suffering will reveal if you're just playing along. Or if you're really in this thing for keeps. If you really have skin in the game. Do you have your life on the line? Is it for all the marbles? The sad reality is that when many of you young people get out into quote-unquote real life and face the kinds of suffering that you will face, the trials that the Lord Himself will bring into your life to test the quality of your confession, it will turn out to be fool's gold. All along. Maybe you're one of the more seasoned ones in this room and this is part of your story. Maybe you trusted the Lord with some degree of fervor and desire to please Him, and then suffering came into your life. And it was harder than you thought. And your trust in the Lord and your desire to know Him and zeal to serve Him waned or weakened. Or maybe it was ruined altogether. Our text this morning shows us how the Lord has set things up to test us. 
for our good and to ensure that we all make it safely through the coming judgment. You may be tired of hearing about the believer enduring various kinds of trials of suffering in this life, but I tell you the truth that these things are here with this degree of emphasis for your benefit and for our benefit together. So let us enter the world of the text that we may better understand our Lord and ourselves. Peter begins, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The command is very simple. It's a negative command. Do not be surprised at the trials. But in this negative command, Peter gives us much more than just that surface reading. He gives us many needed and precious insights into the nature of Christian suffering and how we ought to respond to it. So we'll spend a good bit of time on this verse relative to the rest. It's interesting that he says, do not be surprised. What would we say if we were writing this? Do not be angry at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do, do not be bitter Do not be sorrowful. Do not have doubts. As we read in the psalm, Psalm 44, there's a sense of lament and and questioning and wondering what God is up to that's even appropriate for the believer. Most other responses you can have to suffering can be done in a righteous way and still be honoring to the Lord but not surprise. Isn't that interesting? Number one, we should see that trials are disorienting. By their very nature, trials are disorienting. disorienting. And so he needs to say, do not be surprised. It's a real danger for Christians to be just going along, minding your own business in this Christian life, And then suddenly, fiery trials are not only a part of your life, but dominate your life. Maybe that's your story this morning. Maybe that's the story of someone you love dearly, and I'm not sure which is worse. Christian, brother and sister in Christ, you will suffer. You may hear it all the time, You may know it in your head, but then let something happen to you that you did not see coming. And we're often surprised. Eventually, life won't work out the way you thought it should. Solomon says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Eventually, someone close to you will pass away. And even if you know that they're in glory with the Lord, and even if they lived a great life, and those are big ifs, At the same time, it will hurt more than you thought it would. And will hurt longer than you thought it would. And in ways where people may not be so patient with you. You may well live your life trying to do the best you can to contend for righteousness, and it won't go well. Surprise at trials or the disorienting effect of trials is curbed by understanding their inevitability. He says, 
when the fiery trial comes upon you. Not if, when. And I think it would be negligence on my part if I failed to say that this verse never expires. You can't reach a place in your Christianity. We couldn't Christianize this nation enough where this text doesn't apply. It is going to to come, so don't be surprised when it happens. You cannot be a stable person. You will always be disoriented unless you take this to heart. Number two, surprise at trials focuses on the middleman. He says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you. Who wants to test us? Is it Claudius or Nero for the, for the original hearers? Was it the Roman soldiers? Does the enemy want to test you? Who is the only person who would want both to improve the quality of your faith and show the quality of your faith with the wisdom and power to ordain even the works of Satan and wicked men to accomplish it? Of course it's the Lord. Of course it's him. Surprise at trials then forgets that your life is primarily, primarily lived in the vertical aspect. You have an audience of one. You live to the Lord, you die to the Lord. If your life is primarily lived in the horizontal, meaning primarily focused on the relationships that you have with other people and other entities and nations and governments and all that, then the Lord gets sidelined. But if you live primarily in the vertical, where God is your reality, or as David Pallison says, if He is your atmosphere, then you will not be surprised at fiery trials when they come, because you know Him. Because you know what He is up to in your life. And that Him having all of your heart and Him becoming your steadfast hope and trust and the one all-consuming passion of your life and the treasure of your pursuits with a seal upon your heart. Then, when the fiery trials come, it will make total sense make perfect sense. You will be ready. Knowing what God is up to and why we are still here on this planet puts trials into perspective. Number three, surprise at trials can come from the intensity of the trials. He calls them fiery. The the word here uh, refers to the idea of purification of metals. Smelting. That's why I asked us to sing How Firm a Foundation. That verse about the fiery trials coming, the dross removing, gold refining. That's the imagery at play in this verse. It's not an allusion, I don't think, to burning at the stake. And I'll, I'll make that point more clearly later. I think First Peter was written earlier before state-sponsored persecution broke out. He would have used other words. This is referring specifically to a refiner's fire. So what's the point here? God wants to smelt you. That phrase will never make it into a Christian song. (laughs) 
We will not be surprised, though, if we understand what the refiner's fire is and what the great refiner is up to. Honest question. I've asked you three so far. This is the third one. Do you worship Him, the real God who was there? A God who not only wants to smelt you, but He won't even wait for your permission to do so. And not only that, He'll also ordain to bring trials into your life in order to remove all the impurities. Is that anything like your conception of God? Do you worship Him? Honest question number four. How much time in your life is spent working to create an idyllic situation that looks nothing like a refiner's fire? How much of your time and energy is spent getting out of the refiner's smelting pot? Here is a caution and a strong warning. As the song says, He will not relent until He has all of your heart. So be wary. Consider that our general unwillingness to incur loss or risk of loss and the desire to insulate ourselves in our own castles leaves very few avenues for the Lord to do His refining work. This is what happened to Solomon. He had every pleasure that he wanted. He lived a life of luxury that you and I can barely imagine. Not only luxury, power and influence. And joy in life was completely gutted. And maybe, not always, but maybe, the reason many of us walk around with joy in life being gutted is because we've taken ourselves out of the refiner's work. And so those impurities that he would have otherwise removed through trials have weakened us. Number four, we must remember the purpose of trials. We must remember the purpose of trials. There's another analogy working with metal. And it's not just to remove impurities, but to test the quality of the metal. To see how pure it really is. To expose what the case is underneath the surface. Because you can polish that metal up all you want, but inside, if there are impurities, how are you going to know? There is some measure of testing that needs to happen to know how much smelting still needs to take place. I say this, and this is very important. You have to understand this. Not all fiery trials are primarily about impurities. Rather, the point of some trials, or the dual purpose of many of them, is to show the quality of your faith. This is the sense that is meant in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. <coughs> it's the same idea. It's important that we understand that there are cosmic scale issues at play in our testing. There are cosmic scale issues at play 
in our trust in the Lord. This is what was happening with Job. The testing that came upon him was to show the quality of his trust in the Lord. And when fiery trial comes upon you, it's not always to just, you know, become more like Jesus or remove sin or something. You can go on a sin hunting mission that will make you miss the point of some of God's trials in your life. And that is to see whether or not you will maintain your trust in Him to show that your trust is actually genuine. That's what's happening in some of our trials. Well, is that, that is what happened with Jesus as well. Would He maintain trust in the Lord? Even though He faced the dreadful prospect of God's wrath. We are playing out these cosmic scale issues in our lives every day. We just need eyes to see it. Will you do the right thing even if it makes your life harder? Will you reject doing the wrong thing even if it would make your life easier? That's the question. The angels, the onlooking world, and yes, the enemy himself is watching to see whether you will or you won't. This is how we show the quality of our faith. This is how we proclaim His excellencies even without saying a word when we choose to resist temptation and do the hard things that are right even though it costs us dearly. Even Jesus had to learn obedience through what He suffered. Just meditate on that. That's a whole other message. I preached it two years ago or so. That's amazing that that Jesus' trust in the Father through His suffering is how He was able to learn obedience. Number five, fiery trials are fitting. He says, do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The point being, it's not strange. One of the most hilarious things that exists on the internet is comparisons between expectation versus reality. And someone will see a beautiful picture of a cake or some present that they want to make for a loved one, and then they'll try to do it, and it doesn't look anything like they tried to make it. Why would it be strange? Consider the expectations that would come to your mind and heart if you didn't know the rest of the Bible. When you hear things like chosen race, royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, holy nation. The expectations that come to mind are are grandiose. They're glorious. They're big. They're they're amazing. And they will come true one day. But for now... There's an expectation versus reality comparison that is very stark, if I may say so. As we read in the psalm, we are like sheep to be slaughtered, honestly, often. So that's why it can seem strange. If you know who you are, if you know your identity in Christ, you might expect one thing, but reality is very, very different. Surprise at trials shows that we don't know where we are. Like you, you understand we're not home yet, right? This world has to be remade by fire for it to be a fitting place for the sons of God. You got to know where you are. So if you were to go to the circus, 
and see a clown. It might be a little unsettling, but it wouldn't be strange to see a clown there. But if you go home today from church and you walk in and there's a clown inside, it's going to seem strange. So here's the question. Are you at the circus or not? This world is a circus. And there are fiery trials and they are not out of place because the Lord has not yet returned. There's also a confusion about what time it is. If we're surprised at trials, we forget what time it is. This is explained below when he says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. We'll get to that in a bit, but just keep it in mind for now. If you're surprised at trials, you don't understand what time it is. More technically, you misunderstand the nature of the phase of redemptive history that we're in. But we'll move on to verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we've seen how we're not supposed to respond. Don't be surprised. Now we see how we ought to respond with rejoicing. Twice he repeats this in this verse for emphasis and to show that it's his main point. The verse has two parts. It has a condition and a consequence. The condition is this. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. How do we know if we're sharing Christ's sufferings? There are kinds of suffering that are not sharing Christ's sufferings. There's more on this below when we get to verse 15. Does this mean then that we need to be giving our life as a martyr in God's service in order for us to be sharing Christ's sufferings? There's a ton I could say here. My answer is no. Because the sufferings of Christ here allude us back to what was said earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. When he says for righteousness, that's, that's a broad term in my opinion. Because the sufferings of Christ were not only related to His passion. The Apostles' Creed, when it summarizes the life of Jesus, was born of a Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. His whole life summarized in that one word, he suffered. As I said earlier, when you do the right thing, knowing that it will be hard for you, and you will encounter difficulty, but because you love the Lord and trust the Lord, you do it anyway, or when you refuse to do the wrong thing, knowing that you will be reviled and opposed for doing it, but you refuse to do it anyway because you trust the Lord and love the Lord, that is suffering for righteousness' sake. That was the entirety of Jesus' life. So that's the condition. You must be sharing in Christ's sufferings in order for these conditions to be true. This is why we shouldn't rejoice in all types of suffering. We'll get to that in a minute. Insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, then rejoice. Be glad. And here's the consequence. That you may also rejoice and be glad. What the Lord is after brothers and sisters, is your joy. You've got to get this. I need to say this clearly because we 
as Christians can really get this messed up and think terribly unclear and disastrous thoughts about God. If your concept of God's glory has nothing to do with your joy, then your idea of God is more like Allah than Yahweh. More like Tash than Aslan. He is not smelting you, removing all these impurities through trials, and fiery trials at that, And He is not testing the quality of your faith to prove its genuineness for His own glory in some metaphysical, theological, far-off way out there in the distance that can never be understood. He is doing it for His glory in your joy. Rejoice in your sufferings so that you may rejoice and be glad. Do you see that connection? Joy now in the fiery trial results in more joy in the hereafter and now for the one who trusts Him. Many of you who are Christians live your life as if there is nothing to be gained. As if your joy in glory can't be increased. But it can. I'm here to tell you, it can be. I mean, the basic plan, if we can speak of it that way, for heaven is amazing. But I'm not satisfied with the basic plan. And you shouldn't be either. There is more reward, more joy for those who trust Him and take joy and rejoice in the fiery trial when it comes. The point is clearly this. Rejoice when fiery trials come so that you may rejoice more on the last day and into eternity. If you allow, dare I say, even welcome the work of the refiner here and now and let the smelting process continue and even rejoice in the working of it, then your reward in heaven, your joy in the Lord and His glory will be increased. This is the same point, almost identical to James Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. You can read those on your own time. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I believe this verse is kind of a case study application of everything he said so far. This is another clue, I think, that that he's not talking yet about state-sponsored persecution because if people were being burned alive for their faith, they wouldn't care about an insult. But this is a massive encouragement to us and it creates solidarity between us who live in a free nation. Relative ease. This creates solidarity between us and our suffering brothers and sisters throughout the world and for all time. You could think of it reading it this way. Even if you are just insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The same blessing that rested on the apostles as they went out from the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name, the same blessing that rested on Stephen as he gazed into heaven seeing the Son of Man stand at the right hand of God, and the same blessing that rested on Jesus as He rose victoriously over the grave is the same blessing that rests on you even in the most mundane, everyday suffering for the name of Christ. That's the point. 
And he calls it the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. There's much to say here, uh, but I will try to make it brief. This is different than being indwelt by the Spirit. He's not just saying as an encouragement, just take encouragement because you're born again by the Spirit. The Spirit indwells you. This verb rested is, I think, alluding us to the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So how does this apply to us? We're not the one only begotten Son of God. Here's the point. God's approval, His affirmation of you, His assuring you of final victory, His assuring you of His love. And that tangible assurance of His unchanging acceptance of you is extended to you by His Spirit when we endure fiery trials rejoicing. It is no coincidence that immediately after this scene, the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit descending to rest on Him, that same Spirit drove Him out in the wilderness to be tested. It's the same word. It's the noun form versus the verb form. So, sonship or daughtership is confirmed and known to us and to the onlooking world and even to the angels as we endure temptations trials, and suffering for righteousness' sake and maintain our hope in the Lord and our trust in Him because it looks like the Son. You get that? When our behavior coheres or matches up or lines up or overlays the behavior of the Son of God in His trust in the Lord through trials, then it confirms both to us and to everyone else who's watching that we are indeed children of God. Even if it, if all it ever amounts to in your case is someone insulting you because you're a Christian, because you do the right thing out of reverence for Christ, the same stakes are at play in your perseverance, in your rejoicing through the trial, as were at play when Jesus was tempted. It's the very same issues. God's glory, your joy, your sanctification, all still at play. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We discussed this a few weeks ago, so we'll not visit this idea in full But just know that if you're suffering the consequences of your own sin or folly or ignorance or rebellion, you are not sharing the sufferings of Christ. It's all part of the smelting process in general to remove impurities, but you ought not rejoice in all kinds of suffering in the same glad way. We should count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds, but we're not called to be glad and happy when we are bearing the consequences of our sin. That's the distinction I'm trying to draw here because the text does. Don't suffer this way. It's important to say here that Peter's list could go on and on. Let none of you suffer as a drunkard. Let none of you suffer as a gossip. Let none of you suffer 
as a backbiting Christian. Let none of you suffer as a selfish person. There are all kinds of suffering that will come into your life as a result of your own sin. And that shouldn't enter the matrix of consideration here because you shouldn't rejoice and be glad in that in the same way. The point, I think, is the reason why Peter says verse 15 is to say this. The Christian life and posture is not just to go after suffering and to welcome any kind of suffering at all times. To amend the words of the Apostle Paul, shall we suffer all the more and in all kinds of ways so that our refining will abound? God forbid. God is not sadistic. And to be a Christian is to not, is not to be a masochist. There is a long, long list of kinds of suffering that you should avoid and that you should try to avoid. Specifically, by avoiding all kinds of sin and folly and the sins of others. Psalm 107 encourages people who are in terrible situations for all different kinds of reasons. For their own sin, for their own foolishness, for their own rebellion, or just because they were living their life. So there is strong encouragement no matter what kind of suffering you're enduring. But don't go down that road. Don't be a fool. Don't be rebellious. Don't be violent. Don't be arrogant. Don't be unkind. Don't be proud. Don't be selfish. Don't be a gossip, etc., etc., etc. There are all kinds of suffering that you can avoid and should try to because it would be a result of your sin. If you sin in those ways... There is suffering that is meant to come your way. And that is by God's design out of His mercy. If none of that is happening to you, if you're able to pursue all your wicked desires without any consequence in your life, that's a sign of His wrath. But don't suffer as a result of your sin. How? By being holy. That's the point of verse 15. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name Christian was actually uh, originally intended more likely as an insult. This is how Kevin DeYoung puts it. Almost certainly the believers in Antioch were first called Christians as a put-down. It was an insulting jab that they came to own for themselves, much like the Puritans and Methodists would later do. There was something about these believers in Antioch. Their distinguishing characteristic to the world was that they were of Christ. So the verse could be read with, with quotation marks around the word Christian. If you want to, if you want to mark that in your Bible, I think that would be appropriate. The Holman uh, translation has it that way. If anyone suffers as a Christian, right? And I think that's the sense that we should take it because of the, the context of insult. This is, this was an insult. It was intended to be an insult that they came to wear as a badge of honor. And that's the point. You can glorify God in that name. Meaning, if you are given a derogatory title for being righteous, you can wear that as a badge of honor. That's the point. An analogy to our time today may be something like goody two-shoes, teacher's pet, prissy. 
straight-laced. There are bad ways to do that, of course. You can be abrasive in your desire to do good. But you know what? You will be insulted as such a person because doing the right thing or refusing to do the wrong thing will cause conviction and a sense of guilt. And it will generate opposition, hatred even. If you want to fit into the crowd and be liked and esteemed by your peers, then you signed up for the wrong religion. If you are kind and humble and submissive to authority and don't gossip and don't complain, you won't have many friends outside of the church. I can guarantee you that. And even within the church, even if in this place, you decide that you're going to go above and beyond and be kind and loving and hospitable and not complain and summon other people to holiness, you might find that you're on the outs for a while. Honest question number five. What are you really seeking? Is it the approval of man? Or is it the approval of God? These same issues are at play in your classes, in your groups of friends, young people, people you encounter in your neighborhoods. Are you going to be submissive to the Lord and do the right thing and be looked at as odd and weird? Or are you going to try to fit in? If you're just a little bit rebellious, if you're just a little bit cranky, if you're just a little bit insubordinate, you'll fit right in. You behave like Jesus, you'll be hated. Humbly and quietly wear their insults as a badge of honor. That's the point. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I said earlier that surprise at fiery trials indicates that we don't know what time it is. Here's the answer to that. What time is it? Is it time for us to be in charge? Is it time for us to progressively take over the world? Is it time for us to judge the world? Is it time for us to point fingers at the wicked for being wicked? Is it time to put ourselves on a pedestal? No, it is time for judgment to begin with us. This has massive, and I do mean massive implications for how you understand what's going on in the world right now. This would be a whole other message. This is exactly the issues at play with Habakkuk and the Babylonians. This is exactly the issue at play with Jesus judging His churches in the Revelation to John. But we see now that the refiner's fire has three effects. The first two, we've already talked about, to test or expose the quality of your faith. Secondly, to increase the quality of your faith. But as anyone familiar with the process of smelting knows, all that slag, all that dross has to be taken away. It has to be scraped off the top. This is the effect of discipline or pruning, as Jesus calls it. 
These aren't three different things that God is up to. Three different modes of sanctification. These are three different effects of the same activity of God. He's working round the clock to prepare you to enter your inheritance. And that will mean judgment. This singular work of showing genuine faith or revealing it so that all these impurities need to be stripped away. It's all part of the same work. In a way, it's up to you. What will His refining work do? What will His work of judgment show? Will His work of judgment show that you indeed trust the Lord? Or will it show a long list of impurities? A deep layer of slag that needs to be scraped away? It's up to us in a way. And for most of us today, it's probably mixed. I believe. Help my unbelief. And in the same moment, in the same encounters, we can have faith in the Lord, we can trust Him, but then there's all these, these deep roots and, and permeations of unbelief that need to be scraped away. There are things in your life that are robbing you of joy right now and robbing you of eternal joy. He's working to take them away. The refiner's fire is 24-7. But understand, all of that is slag. It is dross. Let him have him take it away. There are even good things in your life that need to be changed in you now so that they don't become a problem down the road. It's refinement. It is pruning. Holding on to them would be resisting the refiner's fire. Yield to his work Today, lay it down. You don't need it anymore. If you will permit an analogy. It is as if the Lord is letting us take the test early. That's how I think we should take this sense of judgment beginning at the household of God. He's letting us take the test early as a practice run before the day comes so that we'll be ready. No surprises. You can either lean in to His work, His refining work. You can accept that that is His plan to let you take this test early so that on the day there will be so, so much praise and glory and honor for you. Or you can resist His work. You can do everything you can to avoid trials and suffering. You can do everything you can to avoid the refiner's work. And then on that day, a lot is going to burn because it's dross and it hasn't yet been taken away. And you will have missed your chance to take the test early. And if it begins with us, middle of verse 17 on to 18, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Another way to ask this question is this. If this is how the Lord treats those He loves, if this is an indication of how much He cares about holiness and producing it in His people, 
that He would ordain fiery trials for His precious and most beloved sons and daughters, then what will happen to those who refuse His work and salvation altogether? Peter asked this question in a rhetorical way. He does not give us the answer explicitly here, but I'll just tell you the answer. He will dash them into pieces with a rod of iron. And he will cast them into the fires of his judgment in torment forever. And so this is a summons to faith and belief. He says, to those who do not obey the gospel of God. Honest question number six. Do you obey the gospel of God? It's not just about believing true things about Jesus. It is about obeying His Gospel. You may think that you believe the right things about Jesus. Or maybe that you've prayed the right things, but you have no interest in obeying His Gospel. Your life looks nothing like obedience to His glorious Gospel. Look at me. If that's you, You're not a Christian. And I'm telling you that because of what will happen to those who do not obey the gospel of God. And I don't want you to go there. If you say you love God and do not keep His commandments, you are a liar. The point of the gospel is to spare you from God's wrath so that that would not be your destiny. And to create in you a heart that wants to obey Him. In kindness, in great love, He has offered you safety from His rod of iron. And He has offered to carry you safely through the fires of judgment that are coming upon the world. Bow the knee to Him this day. Yield your life over to Him. Give Him Everything. It is not too much of Him to ask for everything from you because He has already given everything, more than you can imagine, to save you. Quotes from Proverbs and says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. What is this scarcely saved business? This is not trying to indicate by the skin of our teeth or, or just barely that, that, that in some sense God's saving work is, is in question of whether or not it will work. The quotation is from Proverbs 11.31. Here's how that reads. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. The comparison, the point of the comparison is in line with what we've already said between the work of the refiner to purify his people on earth and the contrast of what the recompense for the wicked will be. The father is not stern, nor is he harsh, but the discipline of the Lord is never pleasant. The idea is this, if this, if this is the intensity of trials and discipline for his beloved sons and daughters, how will he deal with those who persist in hatred of him and rebellion against him? If this is how difficult it is to take the test early, how difficult will it be? How impossible will it be? to those who hate the test giver 
and don't prepare at all. You don't want to find out. Please, I'm begging you, believe me, you do not want to find out. But better yet, believe the words of the Messiah Himself. Then Jesus will say to those who did not obey the Gospel of God, this is a quote from Jesus, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This passage summarizes the whole point of this section. It unites this whole section to the previous section. Uh, in chapters 2, verses, uh, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, we saw this theme of honorable conduct. And then suffering for righteousness sake in chapter 3, verse 13 through the end of chapter 4. In both of them, this idea of entrusting your soul is present. In the first section, we saw it in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When, his, when he was reviled, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are being fall, called to follow the example of Jesus. And as we said several weeks ago, it is safe for you to follow the example of Jesus in entrusting your soul to a faithful Creator while doing good, even if it means fiery trials in the midst of it, because look at how it turned out for Jesus. Even though He suffered, He entered His glory. He has entered His power. And your destiny is to be with Him if you follow His example. This is the meaning of faith. Entrusting your soul to a faithful Creator. This is so different than just believing the right things. Even the demons believe. The problem with just believing is that it's just like the diabolical heresy. The diabolical heresy is the worst of all because it is 100% true. Their doctrine is correct. No error. Imagine but they hate it. They do not entrust their souls, their being, their all to the God that they know all the truth about. That is the nature of their rebellion. And it is the nature of our rebellion. All of us, every one of us, hold your life in your hands. All of it. Your time, your life, your personhood, how you talk, how you feel, how you think, how you think about your rights, how you suffer, how you think about your suffering, all of it is in your hands and, and all of us do something with it. And most of it just give it over to self. It's the nature of human sin. The soul, the very you of you is there in your hands to do something with. And faith in the Lord Jesus is entrusting all of it over to Him. That is what Christian faith is. Not just believing the right things. He is the faithful Creator. So honest question number seven. 
Have you given all of that over to the Lord Jesus? Do you see how different that is from how most people talk about being a Christian? Jesus is a better person, obviously, to give it all over to you because He is the faithful Creator. He can sustain all worlds together by the word of His power. He is unimaginably good. You can trust Him with all of this. So, in summary of the whole passage, Peter shows us that suffering is ultimately about salvation. The Savior, the Lord Jesus, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Heavenly Father. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. To be in the refiner's fire, testing the quality of your faith, improving the quality of your faith, and removing the dross from you through discipline is not just some intensive program that God designed to create morally upstanding people. He is saving you. So trust. Trust that this is exactly what He is up to. Trust that He is about the business of saving you and is far more interested in making sure you make it home safely than ensuring that you have a suffering-free, pain-free life. And rejoice because He assures you by the trials and your rejoicing in them that you are indeed a son or daughter of His by the Spirit who rests on you in the midst of those very trials. And don't muddy the waters through suffering because of your own sin. That confuses the issue. Rather, obey the Gospel. And when it comes to the world, humbly and quietly wear their insults as badges of honor. Understand that judgment from God begins here because He is saving us. We must allow these things to have their full effect so that we will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord Jesus loves you, brothers and sisters. Yield to Him, and He will surely bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief, reveal to us what needs to go. Give us perseverance so that even in the mundane trials that we face, we will show that we trust you. Grant us strength by your Spirit to endure this trial, to endure the judgment, to take the test early so that when the day comes, we will have nothing to do but rejoice and be glad. In Jesus' name, amen.